We're doomed, we're saved. The Biorevolution Podcast. Your hosts, Luise von Stecho and Andreas Horchler. We are doomed, we are saved, episode 17, as always, with Luise von Stecho, biologist, and Andreas Horchler, journalist, daughter, and father. Today, CRISPR Cas Easy, Life's Processing Tool, that's the title you picked, and uh, there are indeed groundbreaking news because we have uh, CRISPR Cas in real life, in the UK at least, but we'll get to that. And as always, we start, of course, with a quote. What did you bring? So this time I brought a quote from one of the let's say, discoverers of CRISPR-Cas. There are, of course, many scientists who discovered that in parallel, but this is Jennifer Doudna, one of two scientists who was awarded the Nobel Prize for discovery of the technology or of the process in 2020. And she actually wrote, co-wrote a book about the discovery and about her life, uh, which is called A Crack in Creation. And there she says, the power to control our species' genetic future is awesome and terrifying. This Deciding how to handle it may be the biggest challenge we have ever faced. We'll get to the awesome and to the terrifying part, I guess. But first, the groundworks, the basics. How does it work? Yeah, so I mean, CRISPR-Cas is a so-called gene editing system. Gene editing means that you can take out or alter genes or add genes into the genome with high precision. And that is based on, so CRISPR-Cas is one of the newest ones uh, that were discovered. So gene editing has been around for a while, but CRISPR-Cas, so the revolutionary part of it is how easy it is and how precise it actually works. And CRISPR-Cas is based on a bacterial immune system. So it's a way that bacteria use to fend off viruses and it's actually kind of an adaptive immune system so it's a little bit like a vaccination against viruses that infect bacteria which are called bacteriophages how does it work in the lab i mean really tangible how do you process crispr cas so i mean the process in the lab that you would do is that you have a short sequence of RNA that tells you where in the genome you want to make the change. And then you have another sequence that includes the change. So basically, it exploits the general cellular machinery that if you make a break into the DNA, wants to repair that. And this is actually the part that's the CAS. So CAS are the CRISPR-associated genes. And these are enzymes that can make cuts in the DNA or unwind the DNA, so basically enzymes that interact with the DNA. And here, uh, what you bring together is a sequence that you want to change, the part in the genome where you want to change it, and lastly, the enzyme that actually breaks up the DNA. And the rest is done by the natural repair systems that you have in your DNA, and then you can actually make really precise changes in the genome using this technology. So, That stayed, obviously, in the lab for a little while. But interestingly enough, there's been a regulatory framework and an approval of CRISPR-Cas methodology in the UK just recently. For which cases has this been approved in the UK? Yeah, so... 
I mean, it stayed in the lab for a while. So for discovery, so the seminal paper of the discovery, again, there was some work done before. So this is not the first time it was ever mentioned. But the the one paper for which also I think the Nobel Prize was awarded by Jennifer Doughton and Emmanuel Charpentier was actually published in 2012. And now we have the first approval of a therapy 13 years later. So that is really, really, really fast for bringing something, as it's called, from bench to bedside. So from the lab into the patient, this is light speedish, I would yeah, say. And if, if, um, if you think of even drug approval, it takes longer. Exactly. Many yeah, times. usually. I mean, the, the process of developing a drug for a technology that's known usually takes more than 10 years. So this is really, really fast. The approval in the UK was for sickle cell anemia. That was also the first time that a patient was ever treated with CRISPR-Cas. That was Victoria Gray, who I think in 2020 uh, was treated to treat her sickle cell anemia. And the approval is for two different blood disorders. Both of them are linked to hemoglobin levels, so the protein that carries the oxygen in the red blood cells. And one of them is sickle cell anemia, so that is a disease that's linked to mistake in the hemoglobin protein that's actually based on a single nucleotide, so only one single letter in the DNA is mutated, but therefore the hemoglobin is likely to stick to one another. And then um, you get this sickle-shaped red blood cells, and they then get stuck in the vessels and cause pain crisis, so the people have quite severe pain. They also have anemia, so they have less red blood cells, and they also overall have decreased life expectancy. So it's quite a serious disease. It's rare, but of course, very important to get a treatment for it. Do we know anything about the patient outcome yet or about the treatment? Yeah, I mean, the approval was now based on a trial. So the, the patients who had a readout at the time, I think, were 29 patients. And I think of those, 28 did not have severe pain crisis over at least one year of follow-up. So that basically means that for the time after the treatment, they did not suffer the typical symptom of the sickle cell disease. So we can state overall that CRISPR-Cas is a technology that's, that appears at least elegant because it's just the splicing up in a way. At the same time, it appears rather simple in comparison to many other technologies. But at the same time, we learn from the UK experience that it appears to be very impactful, but at the same time, it's scary. Why? Well, I mean, it's scary in general because it allows making changes in the human genome. So I think in general, this has huge potential for cures of genetic diseases, not only sickle cell anemia and other blood-related disorders, but basically any kind of disease that is based on genetic mutations that can be tracked. And there are many, many rare diseases for which this is known. The scary part is, of course, that Following the same principles, you can also alter the genome in a way that is not related to curing disease, but to enhancing or augmenting or changing functionalities. So you could potentially change your height, your intelligence, your oh hair my. color. Mm -hmm. You could breed, I don't know, soldiers who are not afraid 
all these kind of things. That said, and I think this is the, the caveat for both the therapeutic aspects, but also for the enhancing or augmenting aspects, we can only change what we understand. And many of the underlying genetic factors that lead to our phenotypes, so our the way we look, the way we act, the way we think, the way we are, we actually do not know what the genetic component is and what the nurture, so the environmental component is. So based on that, we don't really know what to change. Sounds like Socrates, like in philosophy, in a sense. Yeah. I know that I don't know anything, yeah, or I mean, not enough, we, at least. We know, we know some things, but we only know the things that are on a, let's say, very simple genetic link between the gene and the phenotype. And for many diseases, so for most cancers, there are cancer types that are linked to single gene, for example, BRCA gene, which was made famous by Angelina Jolie, who has that running in her family, for example. So there are cases where you have also cancer, for example, that's linked to a single gene being mutated or being dysfunctional. But in most cases, it's complex. And also for many other metabolic diseases, such as diabetes, for diseases of the brain, such as any neurodegenerative diseases, Alzheimer's and the like, there is no, we haven't found the single gene that if we would fix it, we would get the change. And I mean, the same, of course, goes also for other complex human traits, anything that has to do with personality, intelligence, and so on. I mean, we cannot simply say, if we alter this gene, someone will be smarter or will be more or less violent or these kind of things. I mean, there are studies that make such claims, but I think they're complete BS. So we don't know. One downside of the new technology will be and uh, we can state that kind of the dam is broken after the approval in the UK and there will The other countries, other world regions that will follow, most definitely. The one crucial downside is, I guess, the price, the price tag on it. It's, it's going to be very expensive. And uh, that needs a little explanation, because on the one hand, simple and elegant. On the other hand, expensive. Why? Yeah. So I think the therapy, Cascavi, it's also under review by the FDA. So it will probably be approved in uh, many different regions unless they come to a different conclusion. But I think based on the data, I would assume that it will be approved in many countries. So approval means in general, the therapy would be from a regulatory standpoint accessible based on the fact that it's proven to be effective, so it might cure, and also safe, so it doesn't have any harmful effects that outweigh the benefits. So that's, I think, usually the trade-off that's made by the regulators. But then comes the second part, who's actually going to pay for it? And that, as you said, it's extremely expensive, so um, the price is not announced yet, but so the, the assumption for the price tag will be $2 million per patient. Wow. That is, of course, massive. So that also means... And this is true for many other gene therapies, that it will be only a very limited number of people and also only people in very affluent countries 
who will even have access to this kind of therapy. So for sickle cell anemia or sickle cell disease, this is a disease that's very prevalent in sub-Saharan Africa and correspondingly also in descendants of Africans in America, so Afro-Americans. Here, the reason for this is actually that there is, let's say, an evolutionary quirk that people who are heterozygous for it, so they carry the disease gene, but they still are able to make proper hemoglobin, they are protected from malaria. So there has been kind of a selection for having individuals who are heterozygous for this disease. That said, I mean, in many, many of these regions, even the drugs that are commonly used for treating sickle cell anemia, so I think hydroxyurea, are not even accessible. So not to speak of a $2 million gene therapy. So this is, of course, it's a how you say, like a poster child example of the unfairness of how modern medicine works with high technology potential for cures for the few and no access to much needed, very simple medications for the many. That said, I mean, the reason, so you asked, and I have made a long work around there, but you asked, uh, why is it so expensive? So anything that's new is expensive in general, because it needs to bring in the costs of the development, basically. So uh, bringing a drug to market, I mean, there are very different price tags, but upwards of $2 billion is, I think, realistic. So you can do the math. I mean, if you treat a few people, you need to bring in more than those $2 billion at least in order for it to make sense to even bring something to the market. But what that also factors in that only... So any drug that enters clinical development, only 10% of those will ever make it to the market. So the ones that make it to the market have to also bring in the cost of all the failed therapies. So that's not the pharmaceutical industry being greedy. It's just the business model that you somehow need to make this yeah, commercially viable to produce this innovative treatments. I mean, there was some years ago about gene therapy or a generally innovative therapies quite in debate in the US where you have much higher drug prices than in Europe because uh, you cannot negotiate about it. And there was actually an initiative led by Bernie Sanders to reduce drug prices, but actually he picked some of the, I would say, wrong companies who had really brought innovative and good treatments to the market for diseases that didn't have a treatment before. So there, it's it's not so easy. It's not so black and white that you say, like pharma is trying to make money of sick people. That's not what it's about. The other thing is that, of course, with new technologies, and especially now with this newly approved sickle cell treatment, or also for another disease, uh, beta thalassemia approved treatment, it's just very complex type of treatment. Because what has to be done is that actually the gene that is altered is being altered outside the person's body. So you need to extract stem cells from the blood from the person, then in the lab, make the changes, and then put those cells back into the patient. That is like a very complex... Exactly. It's ex vivo. It's a really complex process. Patients have to stay in the hospital for at least a month with it. It's not... So cells prefer to be inside the body. They don't necessarily want to survive outside the body. It's like not not nice and warm and the conditions are less than perfect once taken out. So you really need to convince them to survive and not also do any other harmful changes to those cells. So it's like really, really tricky to keep that 
altogether and then put them back into the patient. Other approaches that are in vivo, so just uh, doing the treatment in the patient might be less costly from the procedure side, but they're still at a similar price tag at the current stage. But I mean, similar as with other technologies, anything, the more you produce of it and the more common it gets, the cheaper it will also get. And I think that basically now I, I would not say it does or. I'm far from saying it does not make sense to produce these treatments, even if they're expensive, because you need to start somewhere, right? I mean, the first computer was big as a house, and now we have a smartphone that's much more powerful than anything at that time. So you, technology needs to grow, and the same is true for biotechnology. Is it very, very interesting? Obviously, CRISPR-Cas belongs to the family of gene therapy, so to speak. And let's dip our toe a little bit into the history of gene therapy that made CRISPR-Cas possible in the first yeah. place. Mm -hmm. Originally, so the concept of gene therapy, I think, I mean, it's probably was broached before, but the real solidifying ideas around it started in the 1970s with Paul Burke's discovery or implementation of recombinant DNA. So the discovery that you can actually take genes apart and put them back together in the laboratory. And this is what it's all based on. So from the very early days of just putting plasmids together to now having super precise CRISPR-based editing technologies. It's all about altering genes and putting them back together. And in our last episode, we spoke about synthetic biology. I mean, that's also the concept, just rearranging, rewriting, altering genomes in a laboratory setting. And based on that, the first ideas were gathered around how to... So it's relatively easy to, to make or to make changes, and that's, I mean, also what the new treatment is now, Cascavy is now doing, to make changes outside the human body. Yeah, because you can take out the cell and you can convince the cell in taking up other DNA. So, for example, you can electroporate it, so you can put uh, some electrical current on it, or you can put some soapy materials on it. So somehow the DNA needs to get into the cell. But if you think about the body, it doesn't only need to get into the cell, but it also needs to get where you want it. So if you have, for example, a disease that's predominantly in the lung, like cystic fibrosis, you want your gene therapy to be in the lung and not somewhere else, not in the brain or somewhere. So you need to also target the therapy to the organ where you want your action to take place. And that's not so easy. And this is why the pioneering work is often done in immune or blood diseases, because there you can take out the cells and put them back in. And that's not common. That's not the case for other tissues that are more connected. You don't just take out cells, modify them and put them back in. It doesn't work like that. So, But it works well for the blood compartment. Here, you need to somehow target the therapy to the organ where you want to make the changes. And therefore, usually viruses are employed. So viruses, of course, infect tissues. They can be targeted by telling them to go to a specific location and they can be so-called de-weaponized. So you take out the virulent genes from the virus and therefore make it safe 
to use in humans. In principle, that works. The first, I think, gene therapy patient was a girl called Ashanti da Silva. She was treated, I think, in 1990, if I'm not mistaken, for a rare immune disease that's called edas Git. So it's like the, the disease where you have this uh, also called, I think, bubble boy syndrome. So children who have such a weak immune system that they might catch infection from anywhere. And she actually was treated for the first time with a gene therapy to counteract this disease. And she's still alive. So I actually Googled her before and there are pictures of her like back and now. So this is, of course, a massive success story. But then also, of course, these viruses, even if they're deweaponized, they might cause immune reactions. So anything, any material that's a nucleic acid, so DNA or RNA, they have the potential to elicit an immune response in the body because body thinks, oh, virus, short pieces of DNA of RNA, virus, we don't want that. It's actually also one of the principles for vaccination with RNA or uh, DNA. So there was quite a how you say, like gold rush for gene therapy in the 90s. And then there was a one very famous patient death of an 18-year-old patient called Jesse Galsinger, who had a not so severe disease. So he had a disease that's called ornithin transcarbomyelase deficiency syndrome, where the ammonium cannot be broken down very well. So you can, if you eat like a lot of protein, you might actually go into shock based on that. He had a rather mild case, but he got gene therapy and he reacted to the virus that was the carrier, so an adenovirus, and he died after that. And that put a little bit of a hold to the technology. All that I'm saying now, it's all about the delivery. It's not about making changes to the gene. So the problems that are faced by these kind of therapies will be the same for CRISPR. Because if you want to get something into the tissue, CRISPR doesn't make a difference to general or to older versions of the gene therapy. One Major difference in CRISPR is that it's more specific about where in the genome the edits are being made. So it's not like randomly. So these old gene therapies, you just put in a gene, either you express it transiently. So you have an adenovirus, for example, that puts it somewhere in the cell, and then it might be taken up or it might just be expressed for a while. The other thing is that you might actually use a retrovirus. So these are the viruses uh, that are, for example, HIV, that make permanent changes in our genomes. And they're very common. So I think there's estimates that around 10% of our DNA are actually leftovers from retroviruses that have left their mark on our genomes. So it's not like an uncommon occurrence. And these can, of course, be used to channel in a gene therapy. But again, all of that is unspecific. So basically, if you think about you have a 10-page Word document and you want to change a sentence, this would be just making the change anywhere in the document. So the meaning I mean, you still have this sentence, it can be read, but it like loses the context. And if you would do that the same with CRISPR, you can actually change the sentence where it's meant to be. And that makes a huge difference. So we come from something that's not very specific to kind of the, let me phrase it, like the Swiss army knife of gene therapy named CRISPR-Cas. What will be the human diseases that might in the future be cured with the help of CRISPR-Cas? 
Yeah. So I think, I mean, on the short-term horizon are mainly any blood disorders, same as for other types of gene therapy. So, I mean, we have other approaches for sickle cell. So currently this approach actually reactivates fetal hemoglobin or deactivates a gene that represses fetal hemoglobin. So, but there are also other ways to reactivate hemoglobin. So this is one of the approaches, any kind of other blood and immune related diseases which work via stem cell transplant and have single gene mutations are prime candidates and are also being investigated for CRISPR therapies. The other thing that is doable, but currently, at least in the approaches that I read, didn't work so well, are eye diseases, congenital blindness-related diseases. But here, the company by Feng Zhang and uh, collaborators, so editors, they actually had rather negative results with first tries. And for these kind of diseases, classical gene therapies like Lux Turner, for example, are already approved. So here it's not really clear. It's probably not that the technology won't work, but that these first approaches uh, didn't really show promise by this company that was furthest ahead of that. And then another group of diseases that uh, lend themselves very well are uh, diseases of the liver, because the uh, breakdown of these nucleic acids actually happens in the liver. So basically you don't have to target it very specifically. It just will end up in the liver anyways. And that was the company that uh, Jennifer Doudna founded. So Intelia, they had, um, I think last year, the first patient treated um, for liver disease, ATTR, amyloidosis. So that's a buildup of a protein that's called transuretin. And that's actually building up in the liver and in other organs. And they had really good results there showing that they could reduce um, the buildups in patients. And they also have an interesting finding, namely that they can use exactly the same technology, just switching. So using the whole similar apparatus, just switching the type of DNA that needs to be exchanged to target a different liver disease that's called uh, hereditary angioedema, where uh, you get like immune attacks constantly. And also there, they had really good results. So that, I mean, this kind of result shows on the one hand, you can target liver diseases. It also shows that it might get actually easier and cheaper over time because you don't have to reinvent the wheel with every therapy that you do. So that could be really interesting. Going beyond that, I think the question is still open of how to get the therapy to where it's supposed to act. Other more confined organs, for example, like injecting something directly into the brain or having inhalators that bring something into the lung could be promising approaches. But going beyond that, I think there is it's still pretty difficult to target any kind of gene therapy, which also includes CRISPR-based approaches. Izzy, we have CRISPR-Cas9 it's called like that. And uh, this apparently opens up a new horizon for gene editing. In which way? Yeah, so I mean, CRISPR-Cas9 is the classical, or not the classical, so it's the one that humans use the most. So as said, the Cas proteins are, or the Cas genes code for proteins that interact with the DNA. And Cas9 is a nuclease that just makes double-strand breaks in the DNA. And that works pretty well for the human approaches. There's another one, Cas12, that's being commonly used. But there's a whole host of other Cas proteins that could also be used to interact with the DNA. These double-strand breaks, even though it's 
quite precise and much, much more precise than the example that I brought with the word documents, so the classical gene therapy. Still, there is a chance that there are insertions that are made at the wrong side. And there is still a chance that it actually leads to genomic instability that leads to large rearrangements. And this is risky because it might lead to cancer. And with classical gene therapies, there was actually a case of a therapy that induced leukemia in a number of patients. And that's, of course, something you really don't want from your gene therapy that you cure one disease and cause another that yeah, is not, not the target. So to avoid that, working even more precisely is the goal. And there is a, a way to do that. And there was uh, now the first patient treatment with therapy that's based on that. And that is base editing. So here you don't even cut both strands of the DNA, but you only change a single letter of the DNA. And that would, for example, work also, I mean, if you Think about the sickle cell disease where you only have one mutate, one letter mutation. It would be enough to change this one letter. So you don't even have to rearrange anything in the genome. Also, the therapy that was now just introduced, it's uh, by Beam Therapeutics. They used it also for um, an ex vivo therapy, CAR T, it's called. So there you introduce T cells uh, that are modified outside the body and put back into the patient, for example, to attack cancer. But that could theoretically, of course, also work in in vivo approaches and might be much safer than the classical form of CRISPR-Cas9-based therapy. Amazing chances on the horizon, amazing challenges for those who will most definitely try to regulate the field of gene editing and more concrete CRISPR-Cas. What is in the making right now where a lot of big pharma is investigating, is developing, and at the same time regulators appear to be a little slower than the industry, but still given the threats that we defined that come with the technology, and we named a few, you know, altering mankind at the end of the day, to, to put it very simplistic, Where do we stand in, in, in terms of regulation and what, to be honest, will be possible in regulation at all? Yeah, there are two different ways that you can make edits with CRISPR or any other kind of gene gene editing tool, uh, which are on the one hand making changes in somatic cells, so the cells of the adult body. So these changes are not transmitted to following generations, you only make a change in this one individual, for example, by gene therapy. But uh, you could also, for example, change the, I don't know, I mean, I'm really hypothesizing now, but maybe you could change the pigments in a stretch of your skin cells on your arm and turn them green or something like that. But that would, of course, first of all, not be hereditary and would also be subject to the turnover of those cells. So if you have new cells coming in that don't have the change, then your arm might turn the color that it had before. So these changes are, even though the edits that are made to the cell at the time are permanent, only prevalent for as long as the cell and its descendants lives. So it will be diluted over time. The other thing is, of course, that you can make changes in the germline, so in the egg and sperm cells, or also make changes at a very early embryonic stage. And here, these might be, if they are transmitted to the germline, of course, given over to 
subsequent generations. And this is something that is banned in most countries. So germline edits are not allowed and also embryonic editing is not allowed in most countries. The regulation is very difficult for, I would say, the somatic edits because I could potentially, in Germany it's not legal, but I probably would find a workaround if I spend some time, order a CRISPR kit, do the experimentation if I have a microscope and a pipette at home and inject myself with a gene therapy. And there are these people called biohackers who do exactly that. So they experiment on themselves to make genetic edits. That said, that will probably, unless I publicize it, no one will ever know that I did it. On the other hand, there's the germline editing, which requires a laboratory setting, because this is not, I mean, taking out egg cells from your body is not something that you can do at home, even with quite elaborate equipment. However, I mean, you don't really know what people are doing in laboratories, right? And there are definitely countries, organizations, groups of people who do research in laboratories that's considered unethical. And it could be just a single individual working in a laboratory who does that, who already crosses the line. So there's, of course, this really famous case of the Chinese doctor, Jiankui, who I think in 2018 made changes in to so-called CRISPR babies. So he, in a in vitro fertilization setting, actually altered the genomes of two twin girls to edit out a gene that's relevant for a receptor that binds to HIV because their father is HIV positive. That said, I mean, uh, usually the infection risk is extremely low and this was basically a useless experiment, but it shows that it can be done and that it is being done. This researcher went on YouTube to publish his results. He is now serving a three years prison sentence in China, but that doesn't mean that other people do the same kind of thing and they just don't talk about it or not as loudly. So that's what I'm trying to say is that the technology, due to its simplicity, is only regulatable to a certain extent. And another thing, and that's also very tricky, is that there is even in the research community not a very strong consensus of how far we want to go. So where is the line between curing a disease and making an edit. So how many augmentations, how many improvements would be permissible? And this is, of course, a very, yeah, it's a, it's a gray zone of where you would say I'm curing a disease or I'm altering the traits of a person. And I think one, I mean, one of the examples where this is quite evident is would you cure autism? Right. right. Is that something? Is that ethical, highly ethical question, of course. Yeah. Hmm. And would you even consider it curing? Because you might, I mean, this is your personality, right? If you, right. so, I mean, having all these questions around neurodiversity, yeah, it, this makes it, I think, exemplifies why it's so difficult to make these decisions. I think it's not so much about if someone has blue, green, brown, or yellow eyes, That that's not what it's about, but it's about really getting into, would you would you edit out genes that make you more prone for, addiction or for any kind of neurodiversity or anything like that. And at the same time, probably also change the, so, I mean, without wanting to say that it's a good thing, but many very creative people, for example, often have some kind of neurodiversity might even be bipolar or, or diagnosed as bipolar, for example. So of course, would you, uh, yeah, uh, how, how, how do you, where, where do you put the trade off? 
uh, and do you want everyone to follow a certain line of perfection or what is considered mm. perfection? And I think one difficult part about that, and this is, it's really as a scientist, very good to look a few years back and it doesn't even have to be too many, but just look a few years back and think about what was considered the state of the art just 30 years ago or something and how much has changed and how many new things we know now and also consider what is considered perfect and what is considered good and what is considered normal and that these things might change very drastically just by ethical consent or sorry societal consensus of what a person should be like This is really tricky if you want to start making permanent changes to improve people. And a set of questions that might be better answered by philosophers than by scientists at the end of the day. And that would raise the question if there are enough philosophers in the debate at all. And I guess there are not that many right now, or at least not that many who understand the matter, right? Yeah, I mean, there are bioethicists and they are part of the discussions, but often they take the side of the skeptic, of the technology critic, which I mean, of course, also makes sense. But I think having a voice that's technologically or biotechnologically positive and still cautious, I think this is the important niche here. And what is also really difficult is to, I mean, these things are very complex. Even though I say that CRISPR is simple, I mean, I'm scratching on the surface. I do not know more than three Cas proteins there. I do not know all the challenges that the technology might bring if you implement it. So here, I would say breaking it down to a level where people really understand the implications and not oversimplifying it. And that especially goes for the regulators and the policymakers and the politicians. There was this debate about bans, for example, or like regulation of CRISPR in the US Senate. And then one older man stood up and said like, yeah, but doesn't that bring us a technological advantage over other nations? So, I mean, this is also a way to see it, right? Of course, absolutely. Yeah. So getting to a consensus of where you, you might want to go with such a technology, even in the scientific community, and of course, much more beyond that is very difficult. I mean, we see the same for the AI debate. There is this like big scares. People, people are told you have to be afraid of this, but they're not given the chance to really see through the potential and also all the limitations that these technologies still have. But Even though something doesn't work right now, it doesn't mean it never will work. And that also goes for many of the editing options that are out there. And therefore, it's really important to think about it before it's too late. That said, I'm not not very positive about there being any kind of consensus. I mean, there was this debate about uh, using embryonic stem cells in research in many different countries. And it's not a debate about the facts or the data. It's really like an emotional debate that is very strongly driven by societal and religious values that go in there. And of course, also always the question of how much money can you make with it? The name of this podcast is We Are Doomed, We Are Saved. We spoke about the doomsday quite a bit, but in the beginning about the blessings and the potential saving of actual saving of lives. I would be interested to close this episode 
in your personal take. So you commented a little bit about that already, but where's the balance? Where's the balance between the scare and the potential? For me, I see more of the potential currently and not so much of the scare. I think it's really, for me, currently, the more pressing issue is that of unfairness and inequality and not finding a model that makes important medicines accessible to more people. I think this, for me, is the more pressing problem currently than some some future intelligent design. I also think that this is something to worry about. But again, I think this is akin to the question of sentient AI. Probably it will happen. Probably we cannot prevent it. And we have to think about it along the way. But we also have some issues that are important right now, which is that people who have debilitating diseases should somehow get access to the treatments that are out there. And it should not be only available to a few rich countries and a few rich people in those rich countries. And I think this is something that really reflects badly also on science on the long run if we don't find a more democratized model for this because thus this will really, again, put this kind of... I mean, I there are these pictures of the evil billionaires like Bill Gates and the like that, I don't know, drink the blood of children to stay young. I, this is It's a bit overstated uh, in this context, but it really puts this... A few select people get everything and a very large group of people doesn't even get the, the basics. And I think that that is, for me, the current doomsday scenario with these kinds of treatments. And as I said before, still, they need to be out there and they need to be expensive in the beginning, but thinking about models to make them more accessible. And I think this is something that the companies are also doing, that they're providing funds, for example, for making the therapies more accessible. And I think this is really, really important. Yeah, we opened the huge, gigantic meta question now that is really about saving or doom, of course, the accessibility of technologies of current developments in science for the world. Thank you, Easy, for We Are Doomed, We Are Saved, episode number 17. Thanks. Thank you. This was We Are Doomed, We Are Saved. If you like the show, please subscribe to it at the streaming service of your choice or visit us at sciencetales.com. That's science-tales.com for feedback, further information and inspiration. Thanks for listening. <laughs>